Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. I'm Hannah Holmari, the editor of Sustainable Wine, and this is the first episode of our new monthly podcast series called the Sustainable Wine Roundtable Member Interviews. So each episode will feature an SWR member guest speaker, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Eric Loving. Eric is the Chief Sustainability Officer at Vintage Wine Estate, a public wine group based in the U.S. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Hannah. Looking forward to talking to you today. So perhaps you could start off with telling us just a little bit about yourself and Vintage Wine Estate. I think there are several people in wine who know me as a Swedish uh, wine writer focused on sustainability. But for the last couple of years, I have been working in wine in the U.S. instead. And I have been the Chief Sustainability Officer of Vintage since right before we went public in June last year. Vintage is a wine group. We have about 13 wineries. We have a cidery. We have about 50 brands across the U.S. and are growing fairly fast. So going public was a good strategy for us, but it also comes with different requirements when it comes to sustainability and sustainability reporting, which I think we're going to talk about today. Yes, absolutely. We'll get into those a bit later. But yeah, so as you mentioned, Vintage Wine Estates owns a number of wineries. So this is across Napa, Sonoma, California's Central Coast, Oregon, and Washington State, I believe. This has been a year of record-breaking heat waves across the U.S. and Europe, and California has suffered from extreme drought this year. So what are the main challenges that you're facing in your wineries, and how do you see the U.S. wine environment changing? I think it's hard to ignore the increasing frequency of weather events uh, across the world. So, you know, hail, heat records, late frosts, early bud break, fires, drought. This is not unique for the U.S. coast. This is happening in a lot of wine regions. I feel like our winemakers are really agile. They're good at being at the mercy of the climate. But we need to be increasingly strategic and have solutions ready for for these events as they happen, because they will happen with, with growing frequency. I like this quote by Thomas Jefferson. He said, we never know the worth of water until the well is dry, which I think sometimes happens in wine, especially when you are on well water. We're trying to understand how these changes will affect our business in five years, 10 years, 20 years, so that we can start preparing now and not start acting after it's too late and already impacting our business too much. So we're, we're trying to be strategic about it. I also think that there's a change in the U.S. consumer that is interesting As I said, I'm Swedish and Swedes are probably the most environmentally conscious consumers in the world, both for wine and other products. But when I compare the U.S. consumers on average to other markets around the world, other European markets, Australia, so on, I would say that they have been less interested in sustainability than in other markets. That is starting to change, especially for like the millennial drinkers and Gen Z wine drinkers or consumers in general, they are much more interested in the sustainability of any product they consume. I see that as an opportunity, an opportunity to get those consumers more interested in wine and understanding why sustainability is important in wine. Yeah, absolutely. And millennials and Gen Z drinkers, we can see that they're switching to other drinks or you know, not drinking at all. So sustainability in wine is definitely, as you say, an opportunity here. You also mentioned uh, Sweden. So It's uh, very true what you say, you know, Sweden's alcohol retail monopoly system Volagic is doing fantastic work in promoting sustainable wine, really Mm -hmm. helping consumers to to understand and make more sustainable choices. 
But of course, before we look at how to communicate sustainability to consumers, we need to understand what a credible sustainability strategy actually looks like in the wine industry. As you said, you know, if a winery wants to exist 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, what does that strategy look like? What are your thoughts on that? Let's talk first about the part you said about credibility. As it becomes more popular to the consumer and to the retailers to talk about sustainability, it's easy to get into the greenwashing for companies to start talking about how aware they are without actually backing anything up. To back up what you're doing, metrics add credibility. It's not a perfect solution to put numbers to your carbon footprint, to your water use, to your waste use, but it doesn't increase credibility. If you say you're using less water or that you have a lower carbon footprint uh, or that you are reducing your carbon footprint, then you need to show the calculations. You need to have the numbers. You can't just say that as a statement. Having those numbers and then showing how you are improving from year to year, that's definitely part of a credible sustainability strategy. Certifications are a big issue for the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, and I find certifications do add credibility. They mean administrative work for the winery, of course, and that can be (laughs) a difficult issue. When I was in journalism, when I was a sustainability-focused wine writer, it was a red herring for me. If a winery said they farmed organically, but were not certified because ABZ or too much paperwork or so on, It was not credible to me. I could understand that that might be true, but for a consumer, it's impossible to know who just says that and who really is. So I believe in certifications. The work that the Sustainable Wine Roundtable is doing is really important because we can't collect all this data for our sustainability program, for our retailers' different reporting needs, for our ESG reporting, for the financial markets. We need to be able to report everything one time and have the buyer and the consumer, the retailer, everybody understand what it is that we're reporting. Right now, I don't think consumers know the difference between one sustainability strategy and another or sustainability certification and another, or even if they are worth anything at all. That's that's a problem. Not everybody can go organic and organic also doesn't cover the entire spectrum. I would like some more streamlined sustainability certifications and uh, more communication around that. We have at least three different sustainability certifications for our wineries. And me being a sustainability professional, I'm not even sure I can tell you the difference between them. So how is the retailer or the consumer supposed to know? I think the last part to add credibility to your sustainability program is to budget for it. If you really want to have an impact it's going to require investments. A lot of the sustainability work we do is actually financially interesting. It improves our efficiencies. It reduces our energy cost. It reduces our water cost. It becomes interesting from a business perspective. But to get a lot of these programs started, you might need investments. If you can only do the things that pay for themselves immediately, it's a limited impact. If you want to have a credible sustainability program, dedicate the man hours and dedicate some budget to getting it on the road and getting these changes implemented in your winery. You know, there's obviously a lot to be done. So let's talk a little bit more about the strategy part. If you could build that out, where should a winery start? How do they understand where they have the most impact, where to prioritize, where to invest? I would say to to set a useful strategy for your company, you need to focus on the most important areas for you instead of going into everything at once. 
you have to prioritize. And to do that right, you can start with a materiality analysis. A materiality analysis is basically looking at how changes to sustainability and social issues, so environmental and social issues are affecting you and your winery, as well as how you and your winery affect them. You can start with the global megatrends, such as climate change, movement for gender and social equity and equality, water scarcity, or biodiversity. You start by looking at the categories that maybe other companies in your space, so in your sector, in your region, are talking about, reporting on, or what your buyers are asking you about. You have this big list of topics that you can start with. Then you need to identify which ones are most relevant to you and your business in your location. For example, water is going to be very important to you if you are in Spain or California, probably. If you are in Germany, water might not be the most important issue. You have other issues that are stronger. You take this list and start narrowing it down. You can have internal discussions with your staff and your customers to see what really matters to them. Well, you narrow this list down to four or five key issues that you want to work with. Those are your focus areas. And they can be things like water, climate preparedness, your carbon footprint, packaging, sustainable packaging, soil health, social diversity, biodiversity, fair working conditions. Whatever you end up with, these are your priority. They align with your values as a company. They align with the values of your staff. You can still do things outside of these categories, of course, but it just becomes a good roadmap for where you place your focus. Yeah, thanks, Erica. That's some really great guidance there. And I'd love to hear a bit more about what this process looked at at Vintage. Yeah, when we did our materiality analysis, that was actually the first thing I did when I came into the company. We landed in four main categories. And for us, the first one is people. That includes gender equity. We're very strong at female leadership. Our community work, we work both with fundraising for breast cancer, for animal welfare, and we have all our wineries have their own community outreach programs. Also the opportunities for our our people internally. Regardless of your background, you should be able to rise within the company. So that's so people was one. And the second was climate. And that includes both how we impact the climate. It's almost impossible, especially for a larger company, to not have your carbon emissions and your climate impact be one of the issues. It includes that climate impact, but it also includes becoming increasingly resilient to climate change. And the third is water. It's it's one of my personal favorites. When it comes to water, we focus on being good stewards of our shared water resources, being water efficient and looking at how we impact our local watersheds. The fourth one was really lifted by our staff in an in-house survey. We have about 600 employees and sent out a survey to all of them as well as doing interviews with some. And packaging and waste came up as a key topic. And that includes both the impact from our primary and secondary packaging as well as the waste generated throughout the supply chain. As I said, I'm Swedish. So just like the Swedish Monopoly, I'm a big fan of lightweight wine bottles. I like the reduced carbon footprint, but I also like the recyclability of glass. Packaging also includes alternative packaging. And I'm especially keen on cans because they are also infinitely recyclable, just like glass, and they have a low carbon footprint. And I am convinced that this is a more attractive packaging to a lot of millennial and Gen Z drinkers that we were talking about earlier. 
But there's also, you know, the secondary packaging, our cardboard boxes or other pieces of our secondary packaging that we need to look at, as well as the waste that comes with the products we buy. I mean, one of the things that one of our winemakers brought up was when we get barrels, when we buy new barrels, they come wrapped in a lot of stretch film, shrink wrap or saran wrap. And is that really necessary for a local delivery? Can we (laughs) do without that plastic? Stretch film really came in in a lot of different survey responses. Our winery staff hate stretch film. In the US, we can't recycle that with our regular recycling. That's different than Sweden, but thin plastic just goes to landfill generally here. We're looking at ways to get special pickup of that now and reducing our use of it. That was one of those topics that maybe I didn't, didn't expect to get so much attention. We landed in, in those four categories, and then we've aligned those with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which a lot of bigger companies like to do. It's the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals with 17 categories. They're considered like a roadmap for global business when it comes to sustainability. So if you do a materiality analysis and you've narrowed down to your key topics, matching those to the UN Sustainable Development Goals is a good way to communicate. Those four areas that you mentioned are, yes, of course, all incredibly important. And water, we will be touching upon a bit further down the conversation. But now I just want to briefly touch upon the packaging innovation that you mentioned, because it's really great to see the developments in this space. Wineries are exploring lower bottle weights and alternative types of packaging from the cans you mentioned, flat bottles, paper bottles, box wine, and so on. As you mentioned, the Nordic monopolies are really leading the way in encouraging this climate smart packaging. But there is, of course, still the big problem of consumer perception, with many people believing in this misconception that heavier glass bottles equals higher quality wine, which we know is not the case. So a lot of work still to be done in this area, for sure. Oh, yes, definitely. I actually had, when I was in the Swedish Monopoly last time I visited, I walked into the store and for the first time in my life, I had a salesperson recommend me a wine. He pulled out this beautiful Portuguese wine and said, you might like this. Oh, But by the way, it's a really heavy bottle. So probably you don't, right? And that was the first time I had a salesperson in a store discourage me from buying a premium wine bottle because of the weight. That was really encouraging. It's a first small step. I think it's important for journalists and wineries to communicate around the bottle. And it's, it's also really important if you're doing strong sustainability work, if you're organic and you're doing everything right in your vineyard and your winery, please, please, please do not put your wine into a heavy bottle because the impact is so big and you're missing the last piece of the puzzle. I understand the problem with the consumer. We have it too. And I wouldn't say we've moved. We haven't moved all our our prestige wines out of heavy bottles. We have not. I'm focusing mostly on our big volume brands and SKUs, but still (laughs) we've got to get that message out there. So any journalist that's listening today, please find an excuse to write an article or mention it in an article. The the more times we say it, the faster we can move the consumers to understanding that weight is not a direct signal of the quality of the wine. Absolutely. The majority of wine's carbon footprint coming from the bottle and its distribution, it really is an area that needs to progress and fast. So yes, the more we can shift that mindset, the better. I am a little more on the fence about bag and box and plastic pouches. Those are very good from a carbon footprint standpoint. And they're also very big, especially the bag and box, of course, is is really big in Sweden. But there I have a little bit of problem with the use of the plastic. 
I really don't like moving into plastic as a sustainable choice, especially not in the US where the recycling rates are terribly low and the opportunity to recycle soft plastic is really, really low. Absolutely. We need to look at the holistic picture. So making sure, as you say, that the recycling infrastructure that's needed is in place for it actually to be a closed loop. That's why it's very good to know what you as a company are prioritizing and what aligns with your values, because there are times where different sustainability initiatives will conflict each other. One that comes up a lot is people saying that organic farming requires more use of tractors for spraying. So you're using more gas or fuel in the vineyard. But if soil health and reducing pesticide use is more important to you, then maybe that slight increase in fuel use isn't as important. I would also like to say that if your soil is healthier, it can bind more carbon. We haven't even started looking at that very much in the wine industry, but maybe you are offsetting your tractor use by having a healthier soil. Yes, absolutely. Soil is definitely an exciting area for sure. Now I want to turn the conversation to investors and recordings. As a publicly listed wine group, you're no doubt closely following the upcoming regulations on sustainability reporting. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Again, the U.S. has been a little bit behind Europe, but finally the SEC, so the Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates public companies like ours, this spring they came out with some game-changing news. They will require ESG reporting or sustainability reporting for public companies starting as early as next year, depending on your company size. We're still waiting on the final version of the regulation, but so far it looks like large companies, that includes retailers like Whole Foods, Target, Costco, they will need to report scope three carbon emissions. Scope three carbon emissions means you need to include the carbon emissions of your supply chain. Of course, that means they need to include the carbon emissions of their wine producers. Yeah, so the SEC ruling you mentioned, it's expected to be finalized by the end of the year. So it'll be interesting to follow its development. How do you think the ruling will affect the wine industry? It will be really interesting to see exactly what it looks like when it's done. I would say that the pressure is on these big companies to do scope three reporting. That I believe will be the biggest impact on the wine industry. There aren't a ton of us who are public companies who will be covered by the entire spread of what needs to be reported. But for a smaller company that delivers to big public companies, doing your scope two work, so your own carbon emissions calculation will be helpful in your relationship to these bigger companies. They will ask you about it. And if you have it, you're helping them run their business, whether it's required or not. Doing the scope two calculations isn't terrible. It gets a lot harder when you're our size. We're, we're doing our scope two calculations right now for the first time. For us, it's definitely complex. But if you are smaller and have one energy bill, one person buying fuel for the tractors, one person tracking your fertilizer use, or one log for it, It's not crazy amount of work. I am very positive to the SEC ruling and I am definitely positive to the financial markets. And that includes both investors, banks, lenders, and sometimes insurance agents in addition, that they are starting to be interested in the climate work that companies are doing. I think that's great. There's a little bit of risk that this focus on metrics and the work that needs to go into calculating metrics will take away from the company's time and resources to actually do the sustainability work. You know, having a basic understanding of your carbon footprint and your waste generation and your water use and your climate risk, that does increase the credibility of your sustainability work. And it is good business. The more you understand your supply chain and your 
processes internally and where you are spending resources because of course energy and water that those are resources those come with a cost the more you understand them the stronger you are as a company you can look at it two ways you can look at it as being frustrating time-consuming work or you can see it as an opportunity to understand your business at a deeper level when we've been doing this, especially for water and energy, I've found several efficiencies. I've probably saved us $150,000 just in the first couple of months of looking at the basic processes, energy that we didn't know that we were using or water that we could use more efficiently. And that's just in the first couple of months of our work. So can you tell us a little bit more about the process of scope two data collection and understanding it? It gets a little complex when you're a bigger conglomerate. So I'll just explain for a single winery kind of what you are looking at. You need to know how much energy you buy. So how many kilowatt hours, and then you need to know how much fuel you buy. And that goes for anything that is company vehicles working on company property. So for fuel for your tractors, if you have diesel generators, anything else that falls in the fuel category there. And then you need to look at your chillers. They generally leak a little bit every year, and that's part of your greenhouse gas emissions. So how much coolant are you using to refill those chillers every year? That should be on an invoice from your service provider. And then you need to know your use of chemical fertilizer. If you have those four pieces, you're 90% of the way there. That's actually all you need to do a, a credible scope to carbon footprint. And you can plug those numbers into a calculator. Right now, the one that I know that is available for free for the wine industry is on the homepage of the International Wineries for Climate Action, IWCA, and that will give you a number. They ask about a lot of other details as well, but I personally believe that you get close enough with only those four pieces. We've mentioned water usage quite a few times already, and I'd love to dig a bit deeper into that topic. What are some of the practices that the industry can use to reduce water usage and build out a sustainable water strategy? Well, a lot of the basic practices have been covered before, I'm sure. The most important thing to think about is that before you dive into your water use, I never used to be such a numbers person, but when it comes to sustainability, it is important to measure. I know the phrase, you can't manage what you don't measure. It really holds true. If you don't measure your water use, it's hard to know exactly where you have to dig in and what to prioritize. So you need to know which practices in your winery really use the most water or how much water you're using for irrigation or so on. There are things you can do to reduce your water use without understanding how much of it you are using, like, for example, getting efficient nozzles on your hoses or pressure washers, using brooms to clean out debris in the winery before using water, squeegeeing down grape residue before you're cleaning with water. So, so on. You can, you can also use plumbing to allow closed loop use of water so that the water you use to rinse out one tank can be used for first pass of rinsing out wine in the second tank. I would definitely, if you can afford it, it's not very expensive. If you have old barrel washers, then try to retrofit those with highly efficient nozzles because washing barrels takes a lot of water. What I think is most interesting, and maybe that hasn't been talked about quite as much, is future planning when it comes to water, as well as establishing the true cost of water. How do you do that? How do you really measure and <laughs> understand the cost of water? What, what kind of technology is out there? So there are a lot of interesting and intersecting water startups out there for water that can really help you visualize how you use water and help calculate the true cost of water, as well as like the future availability of water. And that's really cool as well. One company that we started working with this year, which I'm very excited about, they're called AgMonitor. It's a startup out of the University of Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara. 
and they are working on the nexus between water, energy, and agriculture. They are a platform, they're software. They help us calculate the cost of water by calculating the cost of energy. I mean, before we, we are on well water, pretty much all of our wineries. It's easy to think of well water as free, but they help add the cost of the energy used to pump the water. We've installed now, or are installing in some cases, flow meters on our properties, all around our properties, especially around important processes like barrel washing or tank washing. And those flow meters come with telemetry, so they can send the data to the cloud every 15 minutes. And then they go up into this platform that AgMonitor has. They connect the energy use on the associated energy meter with the water that we have used for a process. So we can go in afterwards and see, okay, well, we used X amount of liters or gallons of water to clean these barrels. That means the energy cost for that water was Y. Then they can give us suggestions saying, for example, okay, well, you're using a lot of water at the hours during the day where your energy use is the most expensive. Because in California, we have a lot of uh, peak hours for energy, where energy is a lot more expensive than other times of the day. So maybe we can move that practice to another time of the day, or we can automate it so that it runs after peak hours or before peak hours. There are other costs associated with the water that I would like to add in in the future. Just this week, we're signing a pilot with a water startup called Waterplan. They take NASA data, satellite data, and inputs like groundwater depletion rates, and they can calculate the risk to our site-specific water sources and what that would look like in the future, you know, 5, 10, 20 years in the future. They can be really narrow down to exactly where our winery is, exactly where our vineyards are. They help visualize the operational risks, the costs related to water, and how to actually reduce those risks. The water plan technology, part of it that is exciting is also using it for projects like the wetlands that we have at our winery, Bianza. The technology can give us very detailed calculations on how much our activities with that wetland restoration is recharging the local watershed. That becomes a very good talking point with our neighbors around that watershed. That's very much a future-proofing activity that we're doing as a pilot right now. Otherwise, our biggest and most important project this year when it comes to water tech is something we're doing together with a tech startup out of the University of California, Santa Barbara. They're called AgMonitor. AgMonitor focuses on the nexus between agriculture, energy, and water. They're not winery specific, but we're not the only winery they're working with, or only wine company they're working with. They're also working with Ridge, I think was their first client. But that platform is really useful operationally for us to get a visibility into exactly how we are using water and what the energy use that is associated with moving that water around in the winery or from the, from the wells. They're helping us with getting flow meters onto all the key points at the winery and vineyard and the wells. We're getting flow meters that send, they don't actually sell the hardware, they're a software platform. They're helping us in that part of the project too. So we're putting flow meters on that have telemetry, which means that the flow meters can send the data to the cloud every 15 minutes and take it into the platform. And here we can see, for example, we have, we're putting flow meters on our, let's say our barrel washers. So we can see how much water exactly are we using in a cycle of barrel washing, how much is the energy cost associated with that work? And then I can use that to calculate how quickly is it going to be financially interesting to replace the old barrel washer with new nozzles or a new barrel washer to reduce the, the water use. We can also see things like in California, at least, there's a big difference between the cost of energy at peak hours and off peak hours. 
So maybe we see that washing our tanks is something that we should do in the early afternoon rather than the late afternoon because the cost of energy is lower. There's just a lot of visualization available. And with so many wineries, it makes it possible for me to sit at my computer and do some analysis and help my winemakers because they don't always have the time every day to think about how to offer our water use and our energy use, even if they are all very aware. This is a really interesting platform. That platform also calculates our carbon emissions for that energy use. And I think from next year, it will be possible to put in our fuel usage as well to get a total scope to carbon footprint for our wineries. I really love that platform. They have other functionalities too that we haven't activated yet around irrigation. Maybe next year we can start using those as well. We are still working on getting all the flow meters installed and getting all the telemetry set up and get the data into the cloud so we can start doing the real analysis work. So far, we are very happy with AgMonitor. We see great potential. We've found leaks or energy energy use taking off way before we would have normally noticed it. So I can see right away that we are going to not only increase our sustainability efficiencies, but also our cost for water and our costs for energy from this. Next year, I'm hoping that we can activate their irrigation tool. The platform uses AI to calculate different pieces of data like the weather, the humidity, recent rainfall, and then gives suggestions on how much to irrigate rather than just using our standard cycles. I know that for other clients they have that are producing avocados or citrus, that's a huge, huge benefit because those are very water-intensive operations. But it gets even better. You can actually connect. You can add soil sensors or sensors in the vines, things like that, to feed into the platform and calculate your irrigation needs. Yeah, those sound like some really innovative projects with huge potential. And I too look forward to following how they develop. On the topic of irrigation, what are some of the other ways to reduce water usage here? There are many ways to reduce irrigation, even if you're not dry farming. Of course, dry farming is, is great, but it's not for everyone in every location. But one is related to increasing sensors in the soil or in the air or on the vines. You get feedback on how much water you actually need to use from those. But there's low-tech solutions too. I have been looking a lot at something called deep root irrigations. You know, we went from overhead emitters to drip irrigation, and that was a huge savings. With deep root irrigation, you actually place the emitters by the tap root a few feet into the ground, and that reduces the irrigation need by about 50%. That's very interesting and very simple. But then companies like Epic Cleantech I've been talking to for a while, I think that they are going to be big in winery water in the future in, in water-stressed areas. They were created for the built environment. So they work on reuse of water in city buildings, but they are really interesting for wineries. They have technology so that you can treat and recycle the water within the winery. It would actually be clean enough to just send it back to the taps as well, but there are regulations around that. So you can use it for things like cleaning, cooling, sanitation, we are reusing our winery wastewater now. We take it into ponds, treat it, and we can use it to irrigate the vines as long as the content of solids isn't too high so that it clogs the emitters. But a system like the one Epic makes really allows for another level of reuse. So I think it's very interesting and I am glad to see that they're expanding into the wine industry. And if we think beyond reducing water usage, what else is there that the industry can do? Well, we should look further than our own impact. If we are on an aquifer and we're being really mindful of our water use, we're reducing our use, we're recycling the water that we do use, but all our neighbors are using water like normal, that watershed can still get depleted. So I think long-term strategies about water 
also means speaking to other companies that draw from the same resource and encouraging collaborative efforts, sharing your own best practice, and just getting everybody on board the same train. I think the most exciting work is actually also recharging watersheds. Wetland restoration, like what I said we do at Vianza, that can do wonders for that. That can really recharge local aquifers, but it's not suitable for every property. There are other ways to recharge groundwater that is being tested in California agriculture that are getting a lot of discussions. For vineyards, you can do that as well. You can flood the vines or flood the vineyard with water from your dams before the rainy season and then refill the dams or ponds when the rains come. That actually increases the water in the ground that we can draw on for the rest of the year. It's kind of like you're putting money in the bank and then you're withdrawing it later. Your groundwater is your, your bank. We haven't tried this kind of recharge yet. It's kind of early stages, but I know that our friends over at Jackson Family Wines have done it. They've done a couple of trials where they set up barriers around a vineyard and then they diverted stormwater there. So like it flooded the vineyard. The, the vineyard is underwater for a short while. And then this water trickles down into the soil and sits almost like a bubble on top of the groundwater so that they can draw on it the rest of the year. They had some water experts do calculations on that. And that project showed that it, they could recharge the local groundwater with more water than they were withdrawing for that same vineyard uh, later in the year. That's really interesting. Yeah, as you say, you know, learning from each other is is really key here. And as with all sustainability initiatives, collaboration is, is central to driving real and lasting change. And that's, of course, uh, something that's at the core of the work of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable that uh, it's great to have you being part of. That's why we like being members of Sustainable Wine Roundtable too. We see, we and I think most sustainability professionals or winemakers see this as pre-competitive. The work we do for sustainability benefits all of us and protects the whole industry. We want to make wine in the next 50, 100, 200 years. Probably a little far to think, but we've got to do the work now. and We've got to do it together. So let's share what we learn and let's think of this as a collaborative effort. Absolutely. Well, Erica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for sharing your insights and for your continued support of the SWR. It was great to have you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to Sustainable Wines podcast channel and also be sure to sign up on sustainablewine.co.uk and you'll receive our newsletter and regular updates. And of course, if you're interested in getting involved in the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, please do get in touch.